This is The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, commodities markets have experienced extraordinary volatility. After surging to 130 US dollars per barrel, oil has settled back at around $100. Metals such as nickel have also seen unprecedented price spikes. And food prices across the board look set to climb higher. On top of this, the United States Federal Reserve has just increased interest rates for the first time since 2018. To help us make sense of current market conditions, we're joined this week by one of the financial world's leading commodities analysts, Bill Cullinan of Syzygy Investment Advisory. Cullinan starts by focusing on the tough inflation challenge that Fed Chair Jerome Powell is facing, and why, in his words, Powell is having his poor Volcker moment. Great, thank you. It's always such a privilege uh, to have the, uh, the generosity of your time and to speak to you all again. Look, I think the most important parts where we think through the framing from a macro investment standpoint today is really breaking it down between the trajectory of the Fed, the commodity sector, and then the incredible, uh, in terms of order of magnitude, though in many ways very tragic, uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic shifts that are occurring today. I'd start my comments with the Fed. Look, it's very clear that Powell is having his Paul Volcker moment where the imperative to restore price stability has really come to the forefront. It's clear that the Fed has never been this far behind the curve. Uh, Going back to the 1970s, we make that comment in the context of such a negative real Fed's fund rate adjusted for inflation, and that now the imperative is really to try to rein prices in, um, even if growth uh, could be a risk factor as a part of that. And so this idea that we've been discussing quite extensively with uh, James and Michael and the team is that the Fed is essentially in a race to neutral, i.e. the neutral interest rate or R star as it is known, which is where you would have a sustainable balance in the economy between growth and inflation. Currently, that's estimated to be between 2.1 and possibly 2.5%. Obviously, the Fed has a long way to go from the first 25 basis points of which they have just executed. But this idea of being in a race to a place that you don't actually know where it is, if the fact that we're in this high-pressure economy as it is characterized is going to have sustainably high inflation, And maybe we are back to a regime whereby U.S. inflation, instead of being one and a half at two or one to two, is actually between three, three and a half or even higher because we don't know necessarily the effects of the post-pandemic labor market. We don't know the effects that deglobalization is having on uh, on higher prices. Clearly, it's come through in all of the supply chain dislocations that have been experienced over the last two years and likely will continue to occur for some time hence. And then third, how uh, ESG for all of its good intent and benefits could actually be an incredibly inflationary force in the global economy where every dollar of hydrocarbons, uh, of hydrocarbon spend that you remove requires $25 of renewable spending in the context of a very tight commodity market. So, We still adhere to the idea that the Fed will be quite rapid in their uh, desire to get to at least 150 to 200 basis points um, of total interest uh, rate hikes by the end of this year and to start to execute quantitative tightening, so the shrinking of the balance sheet, likely in May. Now, what's very interesting in this discussion on the Fed is it doesn't occur in a vacuum. And... If you look back since 1951, inflation has never come down when you've had a negative real Fed funds rate. So the idea that you probably have to get at least to 250 to really start to make a difference as well, inflation, you've never had disinflation um, without a recession when the inflation rate is above five. And currently, as you know, we're probably gonna run closer to 9% um, for headline inflation 
in March in the United States when that number is released in a few weeks. And so the Fed is up against um, a historic race and a historic challenge to return price stability where uh, inflation expectations have become significantly entrenched um, between the corporate sector and now the household sector. So I think that's going to be a very significant factor for markets where um, though 2021, we talked a lot about inflation for 2022, the real shift in the narrative is going to be the inflection in global liquidity as both the Fed and potentially the, uh, the ECB move to this balance sheet shrink and hiking rates, which is pivotal for risk assets globally, where we've spent so many years uh, being able to go out the risk spectrum um, in the world of zero or negative interest rate policy. And as we like to say, making science fiction, science fact with free money, but with the inflection in global liquidity, that may very well change. I think the second big theme that we've been very focused on portfolio-wise and from a macro framing perspective is what's occurring in commodity markets today is not really a product of Russia and Ukraine, as tragic in Russia and the Ukrainian situation is, that is an accelerant to an existing issue, which is we've essentially had six years of underinvestment in the commodity spectrum of an extraordinary order of magnitude. We've actually worked through these numbers in some degree of uh, detail. And if you look at the underinvestment and therefore the investment required to get back to trend, it would be almost three quarters of a trillion dollars over the next five years, or the equivalent of about 33 million barrels a day of oil equivalent on a hundred million base. So the bottom line is what's occurring today is really an accelerant to an existing problem, which is the underinvestment in the commodity space, which is pronounced and profound and pervasive and, and really has hit a significant tipping point where in 25 years of trading these commodity markets, I've never seen such tight, what we call balance sheets between energy, metals, and agriculture all at the same time. And this is obviously one of the challenges that's being presented to both DM and EM inflation. Um, no, no commentary would be complete without discussing the geopolitical but I think what's occurring geopolitically and the sanctions that have been levied on Russia as a function of what's occurred with Ukraine is going to force sovereigns, corporates, high net worth, and, and even individual investors to have to redefine what is a risk-free asset. When you think that the central bank uh, reserves um, can now be sanctioned and we'll call it weaponization of the US dollar payment system as a function of what has occurred in Eastern Europe, this idea of what's a risk-free asset is going to have absolutely seismic impacts globally on currency and fixed income flows uh, for the foreseeable future and likely lead to a further decoupling um, across the Chinese-Russia uh, axis versus the West in the same way that we had started to see the technology decoupling and then the trade decoupling that began with the trade war several years ago. But I think this idea of, of what's a risk-free asset that can't be sanctioned or may not be sanctioned is going to lead to seismic shifts in capital flows that are really going to affect the currency, uh, interest rate, and even commodity spectrum. But I think in the context of that, um, these geopolitical and geoeconomic risks are you know, clearly as large as we've seen in a generation. And the uh, essentially security alliance that was signed between Russia and China um, and significantly articulated in a 5,000 word uh, statement released by Russia after uh, Putin's visit with Xi Jinping, laying out this new security alliance, which essentially is a significant challenge to the existing world order as we know it. And that's, you know, uh, quite risky in the sense of not just in the Taiwan Strait and what could occur with Taiwan, but certainly in, um, in Eastern Europe and for NATO. And these things have a tendency to, um, to accelerate. And, you know, regrettably, what's occurring in Ukraine is actually uh, a piece of a much larger geopolitical puzzle. Um, I think a third aspect or fourth aspect that we need to consider in the context of the Fed's race to neutral 
this commodity underinvestment, which is a progenitor of the significant commodity price inflation, and then the geopolitical risks is the incredibly rapid pivot towards what we'll call fiscalization that is occurring governments across from New Zealand to states within the United States and certainly within Europe, where governments are now going to fiscalize commodity price inflation, i.e. implementing subsidies or eliminating taxes uh, like gasoline taxes, as several states in the United States are doing, to be able to buffer the consumer against higher prices. Um, while this may be very uh, attractive in the short term, in a commodity market and in a world where there's really only three ways to rebalance the macroeconomic system, which is incremental supply, substitution between products, or demand destruction, demand destruction really being the only way available because few commodities have significant flex in supply. And therefore, since all commodities are generally up, um, we've actually never seen so many uh, that are in quote unquote backwardation where short-term prices are higher than long-term prices, that it leaves you with just demand destruction as the balancing factor. Well, if governments are fiscalizing prices, that threshold by which you will destroy demand gets moved even higher and so creates even more scope for further price pressures. And so this is a way that even greater imbalances may emerge across the matrix. And I think when you put all of these different pieces together between the Fed's race to neutral, commodity underinvestment, uh, the geopolitical and geoeconomic aspects, um, the redefinition of global currency and interest rate systems in terms of what's a risk-free rate and how one should invest on a long duration basis, in the context of that and how monetary and fiscal policy can change, it creates an incredibly complex environment. And in these types of environments, you really want to allow yourself as many degrees of freedom and flexibility as possible to invest across the macro matrix. So not just have to pigeonhole yourself into still running a significant net long in equities where there may be significant tail risks, both geopolitical and monetary, but actually being able to explore and express and create alpha, whether it's in the currency, interest rate, commodity, sovereign credit, corporate credit space, you name it, where we think there's far greater mispricing and optionality for these uncorrelated instruments um, and return streams that are possible. And so it's um, while it is a complex environment, it is also as rich a macro environment as I've probably seen in my 25 years uh, in terms of being able to explore different areas where uh, the imbalances create these very nonlinear price moves like we've seen. And as the world is moving toward this inflection in global liquidity, you start to see less liquidity in financial markets, which leads to even bigger moves. And so being able to find areas where uh, options are mispriced can really lead to significant outperformance for a portfolio. Bill, that, <clears throat> Bill that's, a, that's a great summary of, of what's going on and it, I guess it also really implies how complex it is and, and sometimes I think all those things sound incredibly linked but they're also completely separate events that are somehow all happening at the same time which I, I guess happens in the in the macro landscape but if we could go back to firstly your first comment around the Fed and the fact that we're going to print 9% potentially in flat headline inflation in the US in, in a couple of weeks time New Zealand we're, we're heading uh, along the same track I think we're at um, well over seven, heading up to eight. How did we get here in, in the sense of, could the Fed have done more? And, and it's, it's kind of pointless almost talking about it because we are, we are where we are. But is this because there was a complete um, underestimation of, of what was going on in terms of, of commodity prices and inflation? Or is this a, a special sequence of events that was really... Um, not really be able to be sort of seen or, or forecasted by the FOMC? Look, look, I, I mean, I think it's a great question. Um, 
being a Fed chair or a Fed governor can be an incredibly unenviable position, I would say, at times um, because of the pressures of the job. And it's it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. So I'll, I'll please take my comments in the best way possible. But look, I think it's a an interesting combination of exogenous and endogenous factors, right? Which is the Fed wanted to make sure that there would be a sustainable recovery that could build confidence in their ability to come off the zero bound of interest rates post COVID. Now, if you go back to Chair Powell's press conference of January of last year of 2021, where he had made the comments that they had thought that the increase in consumption coming out of COVID, um, they said three things. I called it the three knots in a piece that we wrote at the time, which was Powell thought that the increase in consumption would not be that significant. It would not be sustainable and they would not do anything about it. Now, obviously, a rather radical revision uh, came came back to those statements starting in June and then accelerating into September and then the reevaluation of the Federal Reserve's summary of economic projections in December. And I think this combination of COVID really creating um, an accelerant in the same way of the commodity underinvestment that we're seeing today, which is um, it doesn't take a lot to take an economy from a static condition to what's called a high pressure economy where you get very high levels of growth, very high levels of inflation, very significant labor gains, because essentially we were coming into a recovery right before COVID. And so now we've kind of moved to late cycle and COVID created these significant distortions in global supply chains. That's the exogenous factor. But I think that the underinvestment and the conservatism that had existed since the financial crisis had kind of left the Fed in a position where they've been for decades, arguably, which is beg forgiveness, not permission in terms of hiking, right? And so now when things have moved very, very quickly, they've found themselves uh, behind the curve. And I think also an institutional bias that formed um, because of the formation of average inflation targeting, right? When you do a constitutional change, in an institution like the Federal Reserve, and then quote unquote, stop out of the trade three or six months later after spending two and a half, three years developing your new strategy, um, it's not great for the credibility of an institution. And so I think that created hesitation as well, where average inflation targeting, you know, was challenged almost immediately, um, you know, in, in terms of after it was executed. So I think it's a combination of endogenous and exogenous factors, but now very clearly, and particularly because of the U.S. Uh, senatorial midterm elections that are coming up in November, the White House has said inflation is a problem. The United States population has said inflation is a problem. And so now Powell essentially has the political backing to be able to get aggressive in hike rates um, as well. But it's now a necessity because at 9% headline inflation, if you're growing wages at 55 or 6%, you can't run at negative real wages for very long without consumption suffering, right? And if the Fed's goal is to try to elongate the business cycle for as long as possible, then combating inflation becomes their primary target in that effort. And that, that's the mix that... I guess what you're saying about not being an enviable position, if you think about the, the target of inflation that the Fed has, at the same time, if they raise rates too quickly, which they kind of have to because of where the inflation rate is, we get into this wonderful world of uh, stagflation where they're raising interest rates into a slowing, if not recession, economy. And and that has huge repercussions on economic growth and and uh, I guess just consumer sentiment, which is, a, which is not a great thing for a for a market like the US which is really consumer driven is, is this something that that we think we're going to to get to or do we are we comforted by some of the comments that the federal federal reserve says where a lot of these inflation pressures are going to come off sooner and, that, and that's the that's the narrative in New Zealand yes there's high inflation but by the end of the year things are going to start tailing off a bit these are short term pressures and we'll go back to maybe a higher than the 
target inflation rate we've got, but but not as high as we're, we're experiencing right now. What's what's your view of where we get to over the next 12 months? So, so I'd make two comments on that. One, from the most recent Fed meeting, you know, where they lay out their different forecasts over the next one year and two year in what's called the summary of economic projections for those participants on the call that may not be as familiar. We, we call it the immaculate normalization. So the Fed essentially is forecasting this Goldilocks scenario where in the forecast horizon for the next two years, growth will be above trend, which would be inflationary. The unemployment rate will be above their expectations prior, but their long-term median interest rate is still below what they think the neutral rate is. So this idea that inflation is going to come down when growth is above trend, employment is running hotter than you think, and you're not even getting back to the neutral rate, so you're running a negative Fed funds rate. It's just somewhat ideologically and intellectually inconsistent. So I think that would be my first comment. My second comment would be, in terms of the normalization, the Fed has made a huge bet in that idea that CPI would headline uh, and PCE would come back to quote-unquote normal. Normal's now 3.7. Remember when it was 2 for 2022. But this idea that it's going to normalize, they're making a huge bet that the U.S. consumer is going to shift from goods to services, right? And that that's going to lead to some, uh, we'll call it amortization in the price pressures. Now, what's interesting about that is when real wage, when wages, nominal wages, not real wages, but when nominal wage, wages are growing over 10%, the pie of income is growing quite quickly. And so the idea that people can spend on both goods and services at the same time, as we've seen, is a real threat to that forecast. I think as well, the Fed made a very significant bet, which they've now started to back off of in the recent public commentary, both by Chairman Powell and other Fed governors in their speeches, where they forecast that all of these supply chain dislocations would essentially be gone by the middle of 2022. Well, there's very little evidence that that is occurring, um, whether you look at that upstream, downstream, midstream from freight rates in China to uh, trucking rates in the United States, there's really no evidence that supply chains are showing any uh, decline in, um, in the tightness that we've seen. And if anything, the most recent COVID breakout in China will uh, sustain those price pressures further and the supply chain dislocations further. So again, I think it's a challenge of forecasting in a very dynamic world. And then obviously, the dislocations that are a product and the acceleration in commodity price inflation that's coming as a result of the tragedy in Ukraine, where people are very focused on obviously what's occurred with energy prices, but you know the breadbasket of the world is really being threatened uh, from a production standpoint, and you could very readily lose 15% of global corn and global wheat production. And you know, one of the reasons why we think inflation will continue to be above the Fed's forecast and, and pretty much every central bank for that matter is all of our survey work and quantitative work says that uh, companies and individuals are prioritizing availability over price. And certainly with an issue like food, you will prioritize that over everything. And so that's one of the reasons why we think that the inflation impulse will will be sustained above expectations. Uh, on that point, Bill, on, on commodities, how does a commodity cycle, like we're, we've seen the start of this year, end? Do, is this a multi-year event where commodities are going to keep on increasing as those pressures, like you just mentioned, around countries putting supply over, over price first? Or is this something that, you know, when we think about wheat or corn in the, in the next crop, uh, there'll be more planting, so it might take a year and then and things come down. And in your experience, do these super cycles, which it feels like we're, we're just commencing, do, do they last some time? Look, I, as I, I go back to my comments earlier, which is there's only three ways that a commodity market cycle will end of, this, of, of a rising price cycle, which is incremental supply. And so if we think about that, There's very little incremental supply, particularly as OPEC 
is drawing down all of their spare capacity at a very, very rapid rate. And all of the OPEC spare capacity will likely be fully utilized by between September and December. You're seeing very little incremental supply out of shale in the United States because producers have taken the attitude that return on invested capital is more important than production. And obviously the ESG considerations uh, that, that stand atop that. And so there's very little incremental supply flexibility um, because all forms of energy are going higher. It doesn't matter whether it's coal, gas, nuclear, oil, uh, you name it. Um, by jurisdiction, United States and Europe, there's no ability to really do effective substitution because the entire price level is shifting higher. So it only leaves you that level of demand destruction. And I think that level of demand destruction will take place at a much higher level than people realize, where in the United States, corporates and households have cash equivalent to 85% of GDP. There's an enormous buffer against price shock currently, uh, less so obviously in emerging markets where currencies have been weakening. And so I, I try not to get caught up in, is this a multi-year super cycle or not? The underinvestment has been extraordinary. What you will likely find is you'll spike to higher highs, but you'll also have higher lows because of the underinvestment. And what we do know is that companies don't invest significant amount of capital to increase supply into substantial price volatility. And so with super cycles, most analysts want to say, you know, oil can go to 150 or 200. You know, there may be cases to be made for that, but I think that's more what I would call cocktail party conversation. What's more important is the floor is rising and that's going to create sustainable upward pressure on baseline levels of inflation. And that's a much bigger issue. So in that regard, I think there's a super cycle in underinvestment that will raise aggregate price levels over time. And you'll just have to look through these spikes because they're almost impossible to invest into, whether it's energy, whether it's metals, um, agriculture, slightly, slightly different. But I think there's more complexity surrounding that um, for idiosyncratic reasons, whereby if the spring and early summer plant does not occur in the Ukraine, then you will not have a winter crop um, in, you know, in Eastern Europe, which is an extraordinary problem at a time where um, countries are pursuing an incredibly important construct, which we call resource nationalization. It doesn't matter if it's coal limits in Indonesia, the fertilizer export restrictions out of China and Russia, the soybean oil and soybean meal restrictions out of, um, out of Argentina, and then obviously Ukraine and others uh, within Eastern Europe that are banning the export of grains. When a precious resource becomes scarce, you just stop exporting it. And then other countries immediately follow because this hoarding takes place globally. So that's something that may take some time to, um, to free up as well. But I, I would just reconstitute the way one thinks about a super cycle, not in terms of how high prices can go, from spikes, but actually a super cycle in a higher base level of commodity prices than we've seen in the past because of this structural underinvestment that can't be solved in one year. If I woke up today and wanted to bring on a large oil well, you know, it would take me five to seven years if it was offshore in the deep water, right? I mean, shale, functionally speaking, six to 12 months realistically, uh, but that's assuming that you can get labor and equipment and uh, and materials, which are extraordinarily tight at the moment. So there's structural rigidities as well that need to be considered. Do you think this puts an end to the albeit slow progress in decarbonisation globally, or, or at least put a hiatus to it? Because it seems like countries will who are very open with decreasing their CO2 emissions uh, will put some of these aspects of keeping the economy running over some of their ESG targets. Yes, absolutely. Look, I think it's a great um, where pragmatism may take over ideology. And I think Italy is a very interesting example in this regard, where Italy has put forward a proposal to suspend the uh, European carbon emissions trading system 
for the next six to 12 months, because obviously that's, you know, sits at the center of this discussion on decarbonization, but the carbon price has gone up so much that now it's created this cascading effect into higher electricity prices. And obviously with the gas shortages that have occurred in Europe um, as a contributing to that factor as well. So I think you're going to see a lot of that uh, coming out where these targets, they probably don't push the targets out. You just see very significant shortfalls in terms of execution. I would also highlight an important article that came out on Friday in the Wall Street Journal in the United States where uh, an activist investor who had been very influential in convincing Exxon to cut back on their oil production wrote a very, very influential editorial reversing his view and saying, actually, the best way to get renewables is to produce clean oil and gas in the United States and get U.S. oil production up. And so I think these are the examples of the shifts that are occurring where decarbonization makes extraordinary sense, but you have to be pragmatic about unique economic situations where what we would call the left tail outcomes are very fat in terms of the significance of recessions that can be created, where, um, I'll give you an example, in Europe, a typical consumer used to be paying 65 to 70 euros a month for electricity, and now they're paying 900 those are untenable amounts for people to pay. And so governments will do anything in their power, whether it's using their fiscal budget or what I would call regulatory easing to try to work around that. What does it mean also for, I guess, politics? And, and perhaps we can perhaps journey into this a little bit and I and I you know I'm aware that commenting on a on a public forum about some of these things uh, is is not the not exactly um, sought after but what is happening in the world with this invasion of Ukraine invasion of a sovereign country uh, NATO uh, some of the reactions from you know New Zealand's closest allies uh, the appetite for for the you know general population for actual wanting to do something militarily seems a lot higher than obviously than than it was say in Iraq or Afghanistan. Things are things are changing, and and then you've got this, and you commented on it before. You've got this other, um, I guess, issue for want of a better word around China and Taiwan and 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 that aspect of geopolitical um, uncertainty. Is there a way that we can think about this really complex setup in a, in a, in a, in a simple way in, in the sense of how you see it potentially playing out? Well, well, look, I come back to this idea that, you know, what started with China and what, something that Xi Jinping has been pushing for several years now, the, the ideology around what is called Xi Jinping thought with Chinese characteristics um, techno-authoritarianism um, and these, these governance constructs and wanting to open the world to those ideals through different mechanisms. And so that's why this security alliance between Russia and China um, is so important, albeit so gravely concerning for the challenges that it could represent. And again, uh, Sergei Lavrov, who is the Russian foreign minister, made this very specific comment to, the, to this effect today, where he said, look, what's occurring in Ukraine is not about Ukraine. Now, we all take, any, you know, take anything at face value, but what's occurring in Ukraine is not about what's occurring in Ukraine. It is about the fight for what the new world order will look like. Now, this is really concerning commentary for anyone to process. And so it'll be very interesting what's going to occur politically, which was the genesis of your question, James, I believe. And you could see it in U.S. Congress where the bilateral support is really growing, whether it's um, in the legislation forthcoming regarding China and the legislation, obviously, regarding Russia. But what you're likely going to see, and we already have enough elements of this that I think it's, it's safe enough to try to make a forecast 
is the global trend, while there, while there is collaboration with multinational organizations and NATO will be a stronger entity after this, of what we'll call self-reliance and indigenous innovation. Everyone will be turning inward to fortify their companies, their military, and their economies. You know, China had started its policy of self-reliance and indigenous innovation 18 months ago. Um, the United States, there is an unbelievable pipeline of public legislation that is coming to do that from semiconductors to innovation and competitiveness, um, as well as international action against uh, non-competitive behavior, for lack of a better term. And I think as well with what is coming with Europe to throw out, uh, you know, essentially 30 years of dogma surrounding defense policy. And now, you know, you have Poland, which is going to double or triple their army. You obviously have the Germans becoming very focused on increasing defense spending and, and so many others are going to follow. So the idea of uh, technology systems that have to be more robust, more resilient, interoperable with like-minded nations. So we're gonna see a significant fracture in that regard. And then uh, different forms of remilitarization that will run full spectrum from equipment to cyberspace, outer space, and, um, and regrettably probably different types of nuclear. And so those are things that when you think about the political manifestations that are a product of that and elections that are forthcoming, that's the platforms on which candidates will likely run, right? Is, is a strong leader, uh, strong foreign policy focus, and someone who can try to project strength in standing up to these uh, extraordinary challenges. As we turned into 2021, we were having the inauguration of a, of a president that seemed a little bit more uh, down the line, a bit more normal, quote unquote. I don't know if that's the right way to describe Joe Biden. Um, we then had a disaster in Afghanistan and, and that, that withdrawal, whatever you call that. And, and now we've got a, uh, a president under huge amounts of pressure because of, of their old, oldest foe in, in Russia um, now causing sort of global upset. I guess it's going to have huge ramifications on, on politics in the US and, and, and I, I guess with, with it likely to be a one-term president and who takes over and, and, and what happens there. I think it's, I don't know, as a, as you live in London, Bill, but as an American citizen, it, uh, it must be uh, pretty uncertain in terms of, um, you know, what's going to play out there and, and who's going to take the country forward in, in these sorts of uh, scenarios. Yeah, look, um, hard to say who, who the front-running uh, Republican candidate may be. Um, <laughs> I think we, we, we all have our innate fears of um, what may return. But, um, you know, th these things always are very dynamic and there's surprises in the process that I think we could, uh, we could be prepared for. I think the elections for the Senate are going to be very important if the Republicans retake the Senate. And I think... Um, the, the challenges that the Biden administration have confronted may be increasing the probability substantially that the Senate switches back to Republican. And, and obviously it's uh, a bit early to say that that would occur in, in the election, but certainly those probabilities could be rising because inflation is the big, uh, the big issue on a domestic standpoint and certainly from a foreign policy standpoint, um, it's been an incredibly challenging environment. So I think, you know, net net, if you end up with a Republican Senate and a Republican president, um, you can make a pretty safe bet that the U.S. defense budget is going to go up and go up a lot. Well, it's sitting at what two two percent, or was it more than about three three percent? In round numbers, look, I mean, it's funny that the way there's no kind of consistent way of defining defense budgets globally. Um, people say China's is two, it may be four, it may be six, because there's a lot of quasi-public-private spending um, and R&D that takes place as part of civilian-military fusion. So there, there's elements of that that are very, very hard to define. I would say that, you know, certainly Europe has been below two and will likely go above that, and the United States um, will go up. It's not just the rote quantitative increase, however, it's also the composition, right? It's, you know, 
the change in the nature of warfare globally is occurring at such a dramatic pace where, you know, spending many, many billions of dollars on an aircraft carrier program um, is probably not necessarily where the spending is going to take place. But in uh, drone technology and cyber technology and advanced missile technology, outer space, you know, these are the areas. So it's compositionally different. Um, actually, the U.S. Defense Department uh, had a public white paper about this on the transition from what we call platform-centric to network-centric warfare. It's no longer about, you know, the big tanks, the big aircraft carriers, the big um, aircraft programs. It's going to be about network warfare. And um, that's a very different type of spending. And I think, you know, many governments around the world, whether it be China or the United States, that's probably going to center more on the nature of defense spending. Bill, re realize we're, we're getting short of time, but there's a couple of questions that just came up on the Q&A just back on commodities, which I thought were quite interesting and probably helps with sort of, I guess, clarifying where some of these pricing going. And, and I'll answer them sort of in one question. One is, what do we actually mean by underinvestment in the commodity space? Is this infrastructure? Is it, is it moving to different types of commodities, which we then don't need as much of? And, and the second one is, which, which is a little bit of a, I guess, tongue-in-cheek one is what do we mean by making oil and gas clean and I, I guess that means the Americans think their oil and gas is cleaner than everybody else's but but, uh, but, but I'll leave you I'll leave you to uh, answer those yeah so on on the underinvestment it's a great question because it's not just on the production side it is full spectrum in terms of upstream midstream downstream infrastructure equipment, and personnel. And so, you know, we've lost anywhere from 25 to 30% of the oil field service workforce from the prior issues that occurred in oil and the oil price collapse in 2014, 2015. A huge swath went into either working in call centers or in trucking, right? You um, have had very significant underinvestment in US pipeline capacity. Some of that is certainly regulatory. Uh, and, and the Biden administration's taken a very, you know, straightforward stance on that. And so if it was just in production, that would be an easier solution. But it's full spectrum, upstream, midstream, downstream. But look, the, you know, that's very much changing. And we could see that with U.S. LNG export infrastructure, that we will probably see a record and historic amount of final investment decisions to increase the amount of gas that can be exported from uh, from the United States. So I think those things are changing. But if you made a final investment decision on an LNG facility in the U.S. Gulf Coast today, it will be 2026 before the first molecules of gas get moved and and uh, mass on a, on a large scale plant. So it's a great question. But one of the reasons why prices are moving the way they are is just how pronounced, pervasive and persistent the underinvestment has been across the full spectrum of uh, of the ecosystem of the commodity space, and then in you know global supply chains that support it, shipping and the like. So it's it's a it's a much bigger challenge to try to conquer, and it's not just oil. It's been oil, it's been gas, it's been coal, it's been nuclear, um, and so it's it's full spectrum in that regard. The the second question: How do you make oil and gas clean? Well, I'm not the individual that wrote that editorial in the Wall Street Journal. I may have chosen different words, but the idea, I believe, that um, Mr. James was getting at, who's was, was incredibly adept at, at what he does, which is focusing more on the way in which you produce, right? So eliminating a significant amount of natural gas flaring when you're producing natural gas or producing uh, you know, crude oil in the Permian Basin, there's a lot of associated gas, which in many times is just burned off into the environment. And so my, my, you know, my assumption of what he was alluding to, which is factually correct, is focusing on the making the production process cleaner and more environmentally friendly. That may have some implications on how you frack, what you do with the materials, that are used for fracking, and then this issue of natural gas flaring that's associated with um, oil and gas production as well. So I think it's more process-oriented than obviously producing 
a, um, a raw material or an energy input that is quote unquote more necessarily clean. So focus on process, not the output. I, I hope that answers Rod's question. Absolutely, I, I think that the, when, when it comes down to it, there's when you consume fossil fuels, you're you're producing emissions, and and uh, I guess when you're reliant on emissions, of at least I guess what Mr. James is saying in the Wall Street Journal is, if you can ex, um, get those out of the ground in a, in a cleaner way, maybe you can justify using them more. But I'll leave that to a, a debate over. Well, just that there has to be a transition. Meaning, if you come back to this idea which when you work through the math, for every dollar of hydrocarbon you cut, you need to spend 25 on this to create a similar amount of energy output from a renewable, right? And what we measure is what are called terawatt hours. So uh, in generation, electricity generation terms. And so you can't completely cut off the hydrocarbon production process before you've built the green. So there has to be some transition zone or else you're going to create these very significant discontinuities, which, you know, we had started to see even before the events in Ukraine. Um, but yes, you know, without a doubt, um, you get more, you know, much more significant emissions from fossil fuels and, and certainly the, um, the resumption in coal, um, you know, case in point. But I think also at some point here, you know, coal and some of these other hydrocarbons will start to price themselves out of the market in due course. And maybe those that are some of the more significant candidates for the next 12 to 24 months for, quote unquote, net demand destruction. Because, again, what you're going to see in the short term is governments will prioritize economic and social stability over decarbonization and goals that relate to 2030, 2040, 2050. For, for better or for worse, but that's just the way that a political process will work if it's a matter of keeping the economy out of a significant recession or something worse, keeping people fed, keeping people clothed, keeping businesses running, then they'll have to waive those carbon-related goals in the short term. And Bill, final question. It's perhaps the hardest and most unfair, but I'll ask it anyway as we sit down here in New Zealand, a, a, a little bit distant from it other than what we read in the, in the media. But do you see any, any hope of this, the awful events, what's going on in, in Eastern Europe subsiding soon? Or do you think this is something that could be protracted and, and last for quite some time? Um, look, I think there's a significant amount of effort going on from several countries to try to begin to intervene to create even a temporary peace for humanitarian efforts to, uh, to start to make a significant difference there, which is so urgently needed. But I think there's a bit of a stalemate now, which is tragic in its own right, which is President Zelensky doesn't want to give up anything that he hasn't lost militarily yet and other things as well. Um, whereas conversely, Putin doesn't want to give up anything politically that he still thinks he may be able to achieve on the battlefield. Um, I think also there's a perception of a tangible change in at least the military momentum from the Ukrainian side and what sort of momentum could continue to be sustained from the Russian army relative to their expectations. Um, I'm a financial strategist, not a military strategist, so I'll retain my comments there. But I think that um, relative to initial expectations from a lot of analysts, this has gone on for three weeks longer than anyone has thought. Um, and so I think it could be a much more protracted situation. Um, and, you know, the more protracted it is, the fatter the tails get on good and bad outcomes, uh, regretfully. But I think there's a, you know, an extraordinary effort to try to create some type of a temporary ceasefire um, for these incredible humanitarian reasons that absolutely need to be fulfilled. I don't know whether that's achievable or not. And even if it is a temporary ceasefire, just that, um, then what comes on the other side of it? And so, again, I would come back to um, the importance of the security alliance between Russia and China and that this isn't just about Ukraine. This is about a much longer campaign. Now, one may be able to certainly put forth the argument that uh, the shortcomings that have um, become evident of the Russian army, perhaps, 
during this campaign and the challenges that have occurred and the lack of success relative to expectations and the fortitude with which the Ukrainians uh, have defended you know, could create all sorts of other challenges politically in Russia that I think are very difficult to, um, to forecast. But again, you know, when you get these shocks to a geopolitical matrix, the, the tails are really fat. And um, I think whatever everyone thinks is going to happen is likely the least likely to happen, regretfully. Well, Bill Callan, and I really appreciate your comments once again on, on a vast spectrum of different uh, events and, and insights into uh, the, the macro and geopolitical, uh, I guess, framework. And we really appreciate your comments today, but also uh, your consistent and, and um, very, very much uh, appreciated help as we try and navigate uh, our client portfolios through this, especially now this volatility, both in share markets and bond markets, but also the wider spectrum. So on behalf of everyone, thank you so much for all the hard work. I know you're putting on, putting in uh, huge hours uh, at the moment and, and it's very, very much uh, appreciated by all of us. So thank you and thank you for your comments today. It's much appreciated. It's a, it's a wonderful collaboration and I'm very grateful and pleased if there's any follow-up questions. Um, I know Rod had just posted one and I'll share some of that analysis individually on uh, the hydrocarbon to renewable spend because I think it's worth thinking through the math behind that. Excellent. Thank you, Bill, and, and have a good evening and enjoy the rest of what's uh, a very couple more hours in your weekend. Take care. Sunday's the new Monday. All right. Take care. And just a reminder that when we think about a lot of these topics that Bill discussed this morning, uh, the, the tools that we have at NZ Funds do enable us to invest not just in equities and bond markets, but across the spectrum in, in commodities and interest rates especially. And this is how, uh, when we think about trying to mitigate some of the risks around the high inflationary environment, and, and the increasing interest rate environment and, and higher commodity prices, we are able to implement uh, investments that protect us from that and also uh, enable us to continue to generate um, a stable return in the event of this volatility because of the different tools we have within the toolbox at NZ Funds. And, and it's really, um, it's really a, a, a setup that I think uh, we're very pleased to have because it, it does mean that we're able to uh, be a bit more stable and not be just at the whim of what happens to share markets. Despite over the long term, uh, share markets will be the key contributor to returns over time and that's something that we, we don't forget and it is something that we're conscious of and we're, we're always making sure that, uh, that the position that we have in share markets for the growth portfolios and now traditional bonds and the, and the income portfolios are the key assets to drive returns but at times like this it is incredibly helpful um, and, and to be able to rely not just on those markets but also on other markets to be able to diversify our returns. I hope you found that interesting. I always find it absolutely fascinating talking to Bill Callan and he's a, he's a fountain of knowledge and, and someone that is able to describe some of these events in, in language that I can sort of understand. But I do encourage you, if you want to re-listen to his comments, we'll be posting this on our Spotify uh, podcast, which is the Monday call, and, and do listen back to it because you can often pick up more than just listening to it the first time. Have a great week, everyone, and, and look forward to speaking same time, same place next week. Take care. Thank you very much. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.